Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that we get to celebrate his coming. The day quickly is coming upon us. Lord, I just ask that uh, you'll be with us today, that you will uh, bless this time that we have together, that your words will be my words, that your thoughts will be my thoughts, um, and that uh, your glory will, you, that you will be glorified. And I ask it in your Son's holy name, in Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning, everybody. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, so I see some familiar faces, some not familiar faces. So welcome to those of you that, have, that don't typically come here. We are glad to have you join us this morning. Um, just for those of you that don't know, my name is Brad Furkowski. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Mercy Hill, um, and I get the, get the opportunity to bring the Word of God to you today. Um, if you've been following along with our reading plan, you will know that we are in the book of Judges, um, which is an interesting book to be in leading up to the Christmas season. But it was in our reading plan, and, and um, it'll kind of give us some insight on why it is that we need a Redeemer. Um, we are in chapter 8. I may have already said that. Um, but we're primarily going to be focusing on verses 22 through 28 and 33 through 34 today. So we'll go ahead and read that. We'll start off with 22 through 28. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Now we'll move on to verse 33 through 34. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Let's pray once more. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you... Uh, give us the ability to draw near to you in this way, that you have given us your word. Lord, let our eyes be opened, let our ears uh, listen to what it is that, that you would have us gain from this, that you would have us understand and get to know you more. Lord, I ask it in your Son's holy name, in Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. All right, so this, is, this will actually be 
the last uh, sermon from Judges, uh, not only of the year, but as we go forward this coming year, we're going to start something different in the reading plan. So um, I felt that it would be helpful to do somewhat of a review, especially I, I know that not everyone has been here for, for each sermon on Judges, um, and what the book of Judges is about, and then kind of pick up from where we left off last week um, with the history of Gideon. So to review, um, the author and the narrator, or the author or the narrator of the book, uh, is pretty straightforward about why this book was written. Um, he echoes, actually, what God had told Moses that would take place in Israel before uh, they entered the Promised Land. So recorded in Deuteronomy, I, I, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 31, 16 through, unless you want to, Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So now we flash forward to Judges. And we see in chapter 2, verses 11 through 23. So I'm going to be a little heavy on scripture here at the beginning, but just bear with me. This gives us, this sets up where we're going. So in Judges 2, or yeah, Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 23. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baal. So they're doing exactly what God had told Moses they would do. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
So that leads us into this book, right? God had told Moses that this was going to happen. And I'll just give you a heads up and kind of a little bit of a warning. This sermon's going to kind of be a PG-13 sermon. Uh, A term that you may have picked up, a frequent term that you may have picked up as uh, we were going through this was that the people would whore after these other gods. So we're going to get to that here in a moment. But I wanted, to, I wanted to say that, you know, as these things had been taking place, as, as God had handed them over for these, them seeking these other gods, the people of Israel were always looking for a deliverer. They were looking for someone to deliver them from, from this oppression that they were feeling from their enemies. So we've seen, all the way up to now, all the way up to chapter 8, we've seen these different judges, right? We saw Othniel, we saw Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, and Barak. And now Gideon. The last two weeks we've talked about Gideon. We find Gideon at the beginning of his story with the, uh, the Midianites are overrunning Israel. And they're basically just running roughshod. Anything that Israel produces, any produce of the land, whether it was their livestock or their vegetation, the Midianites would come in and they would just ravage. And they would take it all. And it was so overwhelming for the, Isra- for the Israel people for the people of Israel, that they actually started living in mountainsides. They had to take shelter in places to to protect themselves. So we find Gideon preparing food, but he's he's hiding when he's called. He's hiding when he's he's preparing this food because he knows that they, they want, when they're coming, they're taking everything. And so the Lord comes to Gideon. And it's interesting to watch Gideon's interaction with God. If you want to go back to the beginning in chapter 6. So he was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the might of yours and save, in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So as this time goes on, Gideon says, If, if, this is, if you are who you say you are, let me see that. Show it to me. So he asks God to stay, and he goes and he prepares some unleavened bread and a young goat to, for, the, for the Lord to eat. And the Lord consumes it in fire. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember this part of the story or if you were here. But the Lord consumes it in fire. And only then does Gideon believe that this is actually the Lord. So you would think that that this would have convinced him, right? You would have thought that this would have been enough to convince Gideon that he has been chosen to battle the Midianites. But then it goes on, right? We see the fleece. We see him setting out this fleece later on to, to have God again show him. And in, in God's grace, he does. In God's grace, he does show him that, that whether the fleece is... However, Gideon wanted the fleece. He wanted the fleece wet, it was wet. He wanted the fleece dry, it was dry, right? And in God's grace, he allowed this to happen so that 
Again, he, he's reassuring Gideon that you are the one that's going to lead Israel against the, the Midianites. But then he tells Gideon, he says, you know, the, the glory that is to come from this victory is to be mine, meaning God's. So Gideon's preparing these troops, and he has, he has a large number of troops. Uh, I can't think of our brother that preached last week. Jonas, <laughs> goodness gracious. Sorry, Jonas, if you're listening, to the, when you listen to the podcast, I apologize for forgetting your name. Uh, but our brother Jonas had preached last week, and he talked about how they had so many troops, and they kept dwindling it down. God kept dwindling it down. And why did God keep dwindling it down? Because he wanted the credit. He wanted his people, his chosen people of Israel, to know that it was him, that it was God that delivered them. He used Gideon, utilized Gideon to be the springboard of this, right? But he wanted the credit to be where the credit was due. And that was with him, with God. So we see Gideon go on and he's, he's, he, he gets dwindled all the way down to 300 men, right? He goes and he fights the Midianites and he, he wins. We see, that we see as, the, as the battle progresses, he, he captures the two princes and he kills the two princes, the two Midianite princes. And then here at chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 8, we see him going after, pursuing the kings of Midian, and he gets to them, and he eventually kills them. And then we come, and then we come to our passage. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Who did they identify that saved them from the hand of Midian but Gideon? Gideon's response was, I won't rule over you. My sons won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Initially, you hear that, you read that, you think this is a God-honoring response from Gideon. But then Gideon's actions follow. He says, let me request of you, every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. So obviously they defeated these armies and this military, the, the Median, Medianite, Median, Midian, goodness gracious, the Midian military. Obviously they, they defeated the Midianites and so their spoil was all this gold, all this gold apparel that was on these soldiers the earrings. It goes on and talks about the, the cloaks and all the different things that they were wearing that was part of their spoil. And so Gideon says, let me, let me have the earrings from the spoil. And they said, we'll give them to you. So they spread them on a cloak. Every man threw in the earrings. The weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels. And you're probably thinking, what is a shekel? Right? So a shekel was about two-fifths of an ounce, or 11 grams. So I did the math. <laughs> it's 680 ounces of gold, which is 43 pounds. It's a lot of gold. 
You know how much an ounce of gold is currently in U.S. dollars? $1,800. So this ephod that Gideon produced in today's American dollar would be worth $1.2 million. 43 pounds of gold. So what is an ephod? An ephod was typically a garment that was worn by a priest. The priest would wear several different layers, and then there would be this ephod garment. However, these ephods were also made at times to decorate false idols. And it is believed that that is what happened here. No matter what material the idol was made out of, whether it was a wooden idol or whatever it may be, they would place this ephod over it. So there's this 43-pound golden ephod, right? It's kind of interesting. If you remember at the beginning of Gideon's story, his father has a... uh, has an idol of worship for Baal, a false god. And one of the first things that God commands Gideon to do is to tear down that idol, this false god. And here we see Gideon constructing this ephod of gold, almost as as if it was a memorial to what he had done. We are told that after Gideon made the ephod and he placed it in his city, the Israel whored after it. And that it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. The word translated here as hoard is the Hebrew word zana. The English translation is obviously a word that stings the senses. (laughs) It's a word that, when we hear it, typically causes us to recoil, whether it's physically or or mentally, when you hear the word whore. Certainly no one wants to be referred to as a whore. Yet we see the term often used describing Israel's relationship with idols such as Gideon's ephod, or with gods, as we read, or other gods, as we read in verse 33. When we are told that as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baalbareth their god. Why does Scripture describe the people of Israel in this way? Well, it's a metaphor. This term is used as a metaphor, meaning, and what that means when it's a metaphor is the term, the word is being used as imagery to emphasize a point. The covenant made between God and Moses, so the Mosaic covenant and Israel, was like a marriage covenant. God, being the groom or the husband, and Israel being his, his bride or the wife. So when, when Israel whored after idols and false gods, the intimacy that was to be solely reserved for God was violated. The emotions, the passions, 
the behavior, and most importantly, the worship that was to be exclusively aimed toward the one true God was directed elsewhere. I sometimes wonder how often do we do this? How often are our emotions, passions, behaviors, and most importantly, our worship aimed at something, towards something other than God? I started trying to think of some different illustrations to use to kind of give you an idea of what that might look like in our day and time. So I'm going to go through a few. When I, we moved quite, we've moved quite a bit um, since we've been engaged and married. (laughs) So I cannot remember, I, I think it was Kentucky where I had this conversation with someone. And they knew I was from Ohio, and they asked me, they were like, are you an Ohio State fan? And I was like, yeah, I'm an Ohio State fan. And they said, the biggest church gathers on Saturdays in Columbus. And I said, he said, Ohio State, the horseshoe. I said, you're not wrong. And any of you, if you've spent any time in Columbus during those games, and, and I'll even admit at a time in my life, it definitely held precedence over who God is. But those, those young men become idols, and they are worshipped. I remember I, what, what changed that for me, this might be a little bit of a sidebar, but part of what changed that for me was recognizing that they're just as human as I am. They're just as prone to the sin and the downfalls that I am. What was interesting, if you have ever lived in Kentucky, <laughs> I worked there for a while in human resources, and, um, and it's Louisville, so if you ever go there, make sure you call it Louisville and not Louisville or Louisville, because they'll know you're not from around there. <laughs> it's Louisville. So when I, when I was there, I interacted with a lot of different employees and came to find out that I thought the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry was bad. It's got nothing on Kentucky Wildcat, Louisville Cardinal basketball. You have families that have literally disowned family members because of their fandom for the other team. So I thought about that. I thought about sports. Obviously, I think that's an obvious one, right? I think now, I think sometimes... Our emotions, our passions, our behaviors, our worship, especially right now in the current state of affairs towards politicians. We see that. Musicians and celebrities. I was watching something the other day, and it was, it was the Beatles. They were showing something with the Beatles, and they were showing these, the, these girls crying and screaming because it was the Beatles. And I thought to myself, to be that emotionally moved for this stranger, because he can sing a song. Obviously, the physical objects, you know, he built this ephod. It was gold. It was magnificent. I mean, visually, and how much that thing was worth, and you had these people, you had these people that were, that were placed into a position that their food and everything was being stripped from them, and now there's this ephod of all this value that they, that they see, and they go, and they worship that they lust over, right? 
So you think of things like that, physical objects, the shiny objects that people lust after, long for, whether it be cars or other things, <laughs> maybe airplanes, I don't know. I guess it depends on what your flavor is. The tractor down the street, maybe, maybe the farmer next door has a nicer tractor. So there's the physical objects, too, that the emotions, the passions, the behaviors, our worship go toward instead of our Lord. It's interesting, you even see this as far as family members. You'll see people that will idolize a parent to the point that they, they want to be the parent. They, they almost do everything in line and do their behaviors. If you, if you see them next to their parent or away from their parent, you almost think you're talking to their parent because they've, they've put their parent on such a high pedestal that they idolize them almost to a level of worship. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I know I've seen it. You see this with children a lot now. You see that the families will sacrifice everything to make sure that the child, every need of the child is satisfied and it goes above and beyond just food, shelter, and clothing. It's, well, we're going to make sure that our schedule rotates around every extracurricular activity that this child does and, and our whole life is behind this kid, Right? So time, money, etc., everything's sacrificed. For friends, we want to you want to be part of the in group. You want to be part of with you want to be with certain people. Certain people have influence in different areas, whether it even be counties or whatever. And so you want to be with those people. So you see there's there's, there's this intimacy which I, I know I'm treading a fine line on, on legalism, right? Because some of those things in and of themselves are not wrong. Going to an Ohio State football game is not wrong. Cheering for them is not wrong. But where, where is that placed in comparison to my Lord and Savior? Allowing your children to participate in extracurricular events and supporting them in that is not wrong. Right? But do we ever check our emotions, our passions, and see if we're aiming it towards other things and not towards who deserves it, ultimately, which is God? Israel's behavior was heavily influenced by conforming to the world around them. So Taylor, when he opened up this series, I remember him talking about how uh, the canonization, Taylor, I remembered your name, <laughs> uh, the canonization of Israel. And what he meant by that was when they, when they went in to Canaan to take the land that God had promised to them, there were people residing there. They were worshiping these false idols, these false gods, these Baals and these Ashtaroths, which Ashtaroth, I think is the name, is Baal's, like, girlfriend, right? So they would go, they, they go in, and so there, there's already people there, right? There's already a culture present when they show up on the scene. And God was specific when he told them, you go in there and you wipe them out. Because he knew 
the influence that it would have. The influence that conforming to the world that was already there would have. That it would influence their worship of him. And so we see that. We see that the culture influenced the Israel people. I would say never underestimate the power and the influence of culture. I think oftentimes, especially in the direction that our culture is going in, <laughs> you know, it's funny, we were watching TV yesterday, or within the past couple of days, and there was a commercial on, it was a long commercial, and it was uh, promoting lifestyles that are not biblical lifestyles, And my wife said, man, that was a long commercial. I said, yeah, there's a reason for that. <laughs> the culture is being shaped and molded. And it has an impact. If, we, if we're not conscious of it, if we're not consciously recognizing it. And again, this goes back to people will say, well, you're being legalistic, right? Actually, I'll, I'll tell you this. I was talking to a young man the other day. He's at the gym. He came in. I, I've talked to him several times. He goes to Miami of Ohio for his undergraduate program. And he comes walking in. He's got a sweatshirt on. It says, Seek Jesus on it. I liked it. So I said to him, I said, Hey, I said, uh, Noticed your sweatshirt. He said, Yeah. I said, Well, I said, A lot of times, I said, I don't know what type of music you like. And again, this may, this may tweak some of the legalistic minds in here, so I, I don't apologize. <laughs> So I, I listen, when I'm at the gym, I've had people ask me, what do you listen to while you're here? I listen to Christian hip-hop, which probably sounds a little awkward to some folks, but there are some very talented Christian musicians uh, that are able to basically preach sermons in their lyrics, and it's God-honoring. It's an amazing thing, really. And so I said to him, I said, I don't know what type of music you're into, but I, there's these Christian hip-hop artists that I really enjoy, so I recommended it to him, and and he was like, oh, yeah, thanks. And I said to him, I said, because, I, and, and, and he didn't, wasn't asking, we were just having this conversation. I said, early on in my walk, what I started recognizing was that secular mu the secular music I listened to was not God-honoring, and it didn't glorify him. And so I had to detach myself from it. And I said to him, now, I'm not saying that you have to do that, and I'm not saying that you have to do that. But what I am saying is when God... And his word uses terms that are so strong. And I hate to keep saying the word, but when you hear the word whore, that's not, that's not a word that you think positive about. So when, when God uses a word in his scriptures that is so strong, talking about his people going after things that don't honor him, that don't glorify him. We should take notice. And we should evaluate in our own lives what are the things that, je we, we, that jeopardize our time? What are the things that we're so invested in that it's taking away from his honor? It's taking away from his glory. Because he wants us. 
And that's why I say it's, it's interesting because, you know, he uses words like this, whether it's that or adulteress, he'll use that term. We'll see that term in scripture. Adultery, adulteress. And I started thinking, I started, I, I was like, why is it? Why would he use these terms? And I thought, how often it is throughout scripture that our relationship, that God's relationship to us and our relationship to him is compared or um, used as a, as a metaphor for marriage. And if there's anything that's under attack <laughs> in our society, it is certainly heterosexual marriage. What God intended, man and woman. And I thought to myself, why, why should we be I think there's, there, there, how do I say this? There is a reason why we should stand firmly upon the created order that God created. Because it's not only about gender or sex or however you want to phrase it. It's bigger than that. It gives us a view and an understanding. God gave it to us for a view and an understanding of our relationship with him. So when he uses terms like hoard or adultery, it's that violation. It's a violation of what he created. It's a violation of what he intended a loving family, husband, wife, to be. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 25 through 32. It's interesting how we usually perceive this scripture because we usually see this part of scripture as like a list of like, this is what husbands are supposed to do and this is what wives are supposed to do and this is how wives are supposed to interact with their husbands and this is how husbands are supposed to interact with their wives. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's look at that again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So clearly husbands love your wives needs to be there. I'm not saying that doesn't. I'm just saying let's focus on as Christ loved the church. What did he do? He gave himself up for her. This is Christ's relationship with the church. This is how marriage, yes, is supposed to look. This is, but let's look at from the perspective of Christ and the church, from God and his people. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her 
having cleansed her by the washing of water, the church being cleansed with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's a far cry from how we would describe the word that I've been saying over and over again, is it not? In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nursed and cherished it, just as Christ does the church. Christ nourishes, he cherishes the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. (laughs) It's interesting that that is how Paul ends that statement. He says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's talking about the relationship between God and his people. He's talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. Yes, like I said before, we should definitely glean what this scripture has to say about marriage. I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from that. But what we have to do is we have to understand what a right relationship looks like with our Lord. And it goes back to the right worship. It goes back to the emotions, the passions, the behaviors, everything that we have within our being that should be dedicated to him and not dedicated to these other things. I thought it was interesting in 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20. This all connects. It probably doesn't feel like it at the whole time, but it all connects, right? So when you think of, again, the term I've used over and over again, you think of prostitution, you think of sexual immorality. So 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, also raised you up, or raised us up by his power, will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Here it comes. Shall I, shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So think about this in our context with the scripture that we just read. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Should we be members with these things, these false idols, these these false gods? Should we long for them? Never. Never, it says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And get this, for as it is written... The two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The first time I've ever recognized that in that scripture. You recognize Genesis 2.24, right? You recognize Genesis being cited here. Therefore, it's being cited within the text. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, Right? And we we grasp that pretty well. We grasp that understanding pretty well, I think. 
that the husband and wife become together. But then, who joined, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We are very blessed to be on this side of creation and on this side of the covenant and on this side of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I think you've probably recognized while we've been reading Judges, like for a time, it, it says that, that uh, I forget how it words it exactly, but it said that Gideon was uh, draped with the spirit or something like that. It, it gives that term. But it, we, he doesn't really give us a time frame in which, in which Gideon has this, has this influence of the spirit. And it is obvious that Gideon does not always have the influence of the spirit. Otherwise, the ephod would not have been built. Otherwise, some of the other things that he did, some of the inter- interactions with his fellow countrymen. If you read, if you did read the chapter this week, you'll see where he, he, was, wa- he was pursuing the kings and he goes through these two, two lands that he's pursuing them and, and he, he asks for food for his, his troops. And the people respond in a way that is, you can't really tell. Is it that they're afraid? Is it they're afraid that because he doesn't already have the kings that they don't want to give him food? Because what happens if, he, if, that, if those guys come back on us? Or was it a lack of belief that he was going to, we don't really get a clarity of why they didn't feed the troops. But instead of capturing these people who had such a large impact on his fellow brothers and then coming back and saying, I forgive you. I forgive you for not feeding them, but we did capture them. He beats them, kills them, tears down towers, tears down part of their village. Like, that's not, a, that, that wasn't the spirit working. The spirit wasn't on him in those moments. But we, on this side get invited in to have the Holy Spirit within us. And so in 1 Corinthians, when you think about the husband and the wife, they come together as one flesh, and then you see, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 19, if you want to skip down a little bit in 1 Corinthians 6, It says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What was that price? It was the death of our Lord and Savior on the cross. If our focus is upon him, the rest will fall in place. I think sometimes, I know sometimes we lack trust. But we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It sometimes doesn't feel like it's working together for good, but it is. You know, there's a the, in Hebrews, it mentions, in the book of Hebrews, it uh, mentions a few of these judges. 
in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there with me. It's talking about the faith. It's talking about the faith of all these different individuals that we meet throughout Scripture. And eventually it comes to verse 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. (laughs) There he is. Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, Samuel, and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign uh, armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. I sometimes think when we look at these, and I, and I, and I think we've actually done this as a, as a faith, some of these judges, we, we lift them up as these great men of prestige. And as you read on, if you continue to read on the book of Judges, you will notice that character is not a strong suit for many of them. But yet here, in the book of Hebrews, their faith is lauded, but I think perhaps we should look at it through a different prism. Because it's not about what a person, what a person with faith can do. It's about what God can do with a person with faith. And so when we, when we look at the, the story of Gideon, it's not what Gideon could do. It's what God could do with him. It seems as you follow the story, it took a little convincing to Gideon that, that the Lord was behind him. And Gideon had faith, although at times it labored. And I think we can identify with that. But God still succeeded with that little bit of faith, right? As a mustard seed. One more reason to lean upon him. I think I'm out. I might be out. I don't think I'm on anymore. It's okay, though. Am I on? Okay. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> so at the end of the day, they were all looking for a deliverer, were they not? The, all the, the people of Israel, all throughout the book of Judges, they're looking for a deliverer, a deliverer, a deliverer. Oftentimes, it was because of physical discomfort. It wasn't because of spiritual discomfort, although that was why they needed a, deliver, a deliverer. The reason, that they, the reason that the Midianites and all these other tribes were able to run roughshod within, within Israel's borders was because of their spiritual, their lack of spiritual strength, their 
going after other gods and other idols, but they didn't see that. They only saw the physical discomfort, right? When you see, when they, when they come, a lot of times when they cry out, like in this example, the reason they were crying out was because their food, their sustenance was being taken from them. But the reason that, the, that this was being allowed to happen was because they abandoned God. Uh, I'm blessed that on this day that I'm preaching that we get to share communion together. And I don't mean to get emotional, but I think to myself what that means. You know, I'm not super knowledgeable about the covenants, the different covenants. I know enough. I know that the Mosaic covenant was one of obedience, right? One that no one could live up to. One more reason to be looking for a deliverer. So a couple scriptures. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on, that, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. One more, Ezekiel 36. Verse 25 through 28, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I have gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Later on, the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, Christ, that redeems them, us, 
from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We transgress that covenant, the first covenant, just as much as those who are in the land of Israel. The day is coming, a couple weeks. We get to celebrate the coming of our Lord. There was a reason he came. Our love for him should not be divided, especially among the things that have been created, not by him. We are to worship the creator. It's an interesting thing. He comes as an infant. <laughs> he comes as a, as a vulnerable child, as a vulnerable baby. I think sometimes we, we tend to separate his humanity from him. And then we also tend to not worship him as he is, as he deserves as God. But part of the reason, if not one of the main reasons, he came to earth and took on flesh was so that we can relate to him. So you have to find that balance, right? He's still our Lord and Savior. He went to the cross. He did what no one else could do. He actually kept the covenants, right? And he brought a new one. And that new one was sealed by his blood. We get the opportunity to partake today in his body and his blood. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I just, I thank you for today. I thank you for each and every one in this room I thank you that you give us the opportunity to draw near to you, whether it be um, in your word or in prayer or in fellowship with one another. Lord, I just ask that we, that our emotions, that our, every aspect of our being, that our worship will be geared towards you, that we will, that we will have a firm understanding and, and be able to place priorities where they deserve to be placed, and that is ultimately with you. Let us evaluate the things in our lives that we hold up that don't come close to who you are or what you've done. Lord, I just ask that you'll be with everyone as they leave today that they will continue to draw near to you and that you, as you have promised, will continue to draw near to them. And I ask it in your son's holy name. In Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate that. Um, as Brad mentioned, we are going to be doing communion this morning. And, um, you know, as, as uh, Brad was speaking this morning about judges, the Israelites were ravaged by their enemy. 
Well, we lived in a ravaged world of sin. Our, our world is full of sin. And because of that, Jesus chose to come and to die for us, to lay his life down for us. And that is truly amazing. It's truly amazing. And so when we come before the table here, let us think about that. That he didn't have to come. He absolutely did not have to come. He was not forced to come and to even come to this world. And yet he did out of love for us. He came to do something that we could not do for ourselves. Just as Gideon delivered the Israelites for something very temporary, he came to deliver us in the total world, in the total scheme of things. And he did it perfectly. And his work lasts forever. His work will never cease. His work can ultimately save us. And so this morning, just a, a few instructions. Um, the worship team is going to play a couple songs here. Um, as you come to the table, as you grab the bread, as you grab the juice, go back and just uh, sit amongst your family or individually and just meditate on what Christ has done for you. And as you take the juice there, as you take the bread, just meditate really on what Jesus did for us. That his total sacrifice for us has delivered us from sin. Has rescued us from sin. And because of that, we now have a relationship with God the Father. That he has adopted us into his family because of that. And that is truly amazing. So let us think on those things as, as they are worshiping. And then if you want to come and worship um, with your voices as well, um, please do that. Um, but on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he tore it and said, this is my body torn for you. And then he poured out the juice and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of me. Come to the table and eat and drink in remembrance of him.